The question that Jesus asks today reminds us that sometimes the meeting of the deepest longing of our heart is just on the other side of this question. Do you believe that I can do this? The story is found in Matthew chapter 9. Turn there, please, with me as we read the story of the healing of two men who were born blind. Beginning at verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over the region. And who wouldn't? if such a miracle had taken place. A a very brief story with all sorts of truth and a lot of questions for us to ponder as we look at it. Now, when we come to a story like this, our tendency is to view it from human need. And that would be through the lens of the blind men. Jesus performed a miracle in their life. What is there I can learn about what I'm looking to see God do in my life? We're going to look at it that way first. But I want to say at the outset that The Gospels were not written as a manual for how to get your miracle. And when we teach it that way, we're missing the deeper, more profound, far more miraculous lesson in all of the Gospels. So we're going to take a second take on this from, I think, what the writer and what Jesus was actually working towards in this story, which is far more miraculous than the healing of of the blind man. We have some in our congregation that are legally blind. Today, you can live a, a pretty normal life. In fact, there, there are many who would say, please don't call this a handicap. I don't look at it that way. I, I live my life fully. But in the day of Jesus, to be born blind was not simply a physical limitation. It was a spiritual one because the common understanding was that being born with any kind of physical affirmity or malformation was God's judgment on that person. We see this more clearly in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, where we see a man who had been born blind, and the disciples and Jesus pass him on the street. Blind people in the culture of Jerusalem in the day of Jesus had one job available to them, and that was begging. Not unlike how some of us know the faces of those who are on our intersections in our city asking for help. This was probably a known person to the disciples of Jesus. And so what they'd been thinking about this person is betrayed in this question. Let's say this together. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? This is what the blind lived with. This was not having the absence of sight. This was the absence of community, the absence of social acceptance, the absence of God, because they weren't welcome into the spiritual life of Israel, which was what the culture was all about. The blind and others like them 
We're considered unclean, unworthy, under God's judgment, and we're constantly on the outside looking in. So when we return to Matthew and the story of these two men, we understand that when they cry, have mercy on us, that was a lot bigger of a request than the blindness alone. Jesus, in the story in John 9, answers his disciples, well, it's not what you're thinking at all. Neither of those possibilities are true, but this has happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's not saying that God did this to this man who's born blind. The Bible indicates that's a result of living in a fallen and broken world. And God allows that for a greater glory to be revealed. And think about this, these were grown men. They'd lived their whole life in this desperate way that we've tried to have you enter into. Sometimes that's hard for us when we're in the midst of a situation that we think is just unfair that we have to live with this. We're waiting for some solution and, and the solution may or may not come. The point I think we need to recognize is on either side of God working miraculously in our life, He is always working for a greater good. Just like we saw last week, He's working in the storm in our lives. He's working to reveal the truth of our faith and to help us learn to trust in Him, not in our circumstances. And so we do not need to be paralyzed by fear when Jesus is in the boat. In the same way, Scripture seems to indicate that God's at work even in our infirmities. I was thinking about ways that the works of God might be revealed even in our affliction, even though it's not the miracle we're looking for. And the first is God often works in our affliction to help us learn to comfort and minister to others. In fact, Paul says that very directly, that we are best at comforting those with the comfort we ourselves have received. And I have watched people face such difficult circumstances. I, I could tell you stories of those sitting here today who are in impossible circumstances out of which they don't see a fix on this side of heaven. And how embracing and walking through it, they are such a source of comfort to others going through similar experiences. They are able to be the voice of God into them in a way that I can't be. Because while I can empathize, which means I can be concerned, I can show care, the word sympathy is only accurately applied to those who know exactly what you're going through because they have been or are going through it. There's a tremendous ministry that God can give every one of you because of what you are struggling with right now if you're willing to see it. And it can be just as miraculous because it can bring comfort, even eternal life, into the hearts of others. And that leads us to the second way that in my mind, the work of God can be happening even in our affliction, and that's to bring about change in those who watch our life. Can I ask a question? Are there any of you here who were profoundly impacted in your decision to follow Jesus Christ or to take a deeper walk with Christ 
because you saw how strong the faith was of someone that you loved or knew who was going through great trauma and yet seemed to find great comfort because of Jesus. Yeah, imagine the gift that that person has given you. Just, just think about that. God can use that. And I'm so grateful for those that have provided it for me. I watched my own mother be that source of transformation in the lives of people as she struggled with a debilitating illness that put her in a wheelchair and that ultimately took her life. And I think mom touched as many lives in that wheelchair as she did when she was directing the choir in my dad's churches and leading the women's ministry. I think the impact she had being the loving woman that she was trusting God in that infirmity probably touched more lives and that will be revealed in glory. I think a third way that the works of God are revealed in our affliction is that they can motivate the search for a solution that will benefit others. How many of the great discoveries, inventions, medications, treatments have been prompted by those who themselves were experiencing an illness or had a loved one who was experiencing an illness and it drove them to search in a way that has benefited so, so many? I think you get my point. Part of being a child of God is to recognize that we are always experiencing, listen, we are always experiencing the miraculous. Because the Holy Spirit is constantly present and at work in our life. And everything the Holy Spirit does in our life, that's a miracle. It doesn't look like the miracle we're looking for, but it is miraculous nonetheless. But then, sometimes the miraculous does happen that we're looking for. We, we go back to this story now, and one of the things we see about these men is their persistence. Just imagine what it took for them, following the crowd, trying to figure out where Jesus is, and then shouting out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us, and then being persistent enough to come into the home. One of the recurring themes in Matthew's accounts of the miracles in this section of his gospel is the presence and the power of faith. And we see that in these men as well. There's a persistence. I'm, I'm going to sit in front of Jesus. I'm going to get myself where Jesus is. I know that's the place where the miraculous can take place. And it's there that Jesus asks them the question that's our focus in our series today. Do you believe that I am able to do this? And their reply is simply this, yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Yes, Lord. Two simple words. But it's so important that wherever we are and whatever God is going to choose to do in our life that we never stop saying that. When Christ says, do you believe I can do this? The answer is always yes. Do you know when we finish our prayers and we say the word amen, do you know what that means? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, we believe you can do this. You know, amen is not like, like pushing the send button on your email. <laughs> it's not like sincerely, Tom. 
for saying yes, Lord. I'm bringing this request to the one who is able to do it, and I'm saying yes, I, I believe that you can do that. We can never and should never, and there is no hope for us to experience whatever God is going to do in our life if we're not willing to say yes. Not just to the miracle that we're expecting, but it's yes to the Lord. Yes to whatever he wants for us. It's yielding to who he is and what he wants to accomplish. It's saying yes to all that he has in mind for us that opens us to all of the miraculous. That which we see and that which we don't. That which we are looking for, which we sometimes get, and the miraculous that we're not looking for. I think it's important that we learn and and see it that way. Now here's the reality. Were I to stand up here as some would do and say to you, this is the formula for you getting your miracle, I would be abusing Scripture. Some of you want to see God heal you. And I want to tell you something. I have prayed and I've seen God heal. And I believe God heals. And I think we need to always pray with that expectancy. I've witnessed miraculous healings. And that's why I always pray and say yes to God when we ask God to heal. But I've also watched very godly people pass away from those very illnesses for which we have prayed for deliverance. And we need to be careful that we don't somehow turn a story in the Bible that has a far more profound meaning than just the the physical need of these blind men into some expectation that causes us to judge one another in the very same way the disciples were judging these blind men. But now it's not about if your parents sin, but it's about the quality of your faith. When he says to them, according to your faith, let it be done to you, some would think that means, you see, the size of your faith determines the size of your miracles. Can I just say lovingly, That's not what the Bible says. It's not about the size of our faith anywhere. Let me just review some of the stories that Matthew is is building here. Now, Matthew's gospel is not necessarily written in chronological order like some of the other gospels. It's written thematically because his whole goal is to prove to the Jewish people that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. So even as he goes through these miracles, he is systematically trying to help the listener and the reader understand the authority and power that Jesus had. He has power over nature, as we saw last week, as he calms the sea and the waves. He has power over illness. He has power over demons. He even has power over death itself when he raises the dead. And he is using the concept of the faith that is exercised by all these people as a recurring theme. So here's the thing. Faith is important, but it's the direction of your faith that is most critical, not the size of your faith. If we go back through the stories, we start, for instance, in in Matthew 8, just after the teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. Jesus heals a leper, and then he heals the servant of a centurion. You may know the story. The centurion is, is not a Jew, and he, he, he feels unworthy for Jesus to come into his home and says, would you just from where you are pronounce my servant whole? And Jesus says, I have not seen faith this great in all of Israel. And the result, of course, is that the, the servant is healed. And, and then we go on, and 
we see the story that we saw last week, where in the boat there's a very weak faith, but Jesus still calms the storm. Why? Because they take that fearful faith and they direct it to him. Lord, don't you care that we perish? That's the word of weak faith. And Jesus calms the storm, so he heals the servant of the centurion with great faith. He calms the storm for those of weak faith. We go on and, and we see uh, the paralyzed man, which Liz will be speaking on in a couple of weeks, where the four friends make great effort to get this friend before Jesus. I'm not going to steal her thunder by telling you the story, but it's fantastic. I wish I was preaching that sermon. She'll do a great job with it. And Jesus sees the faith of the friends of the paralyzed man. And that faith was adequate for the miracles. But not just the miracles, the greatest miracle of all, the forgiveness of sins. I want to so go there today because that's really the, the great miracle, but we'll save that for a couple weeks. So the faith of the friends is honored. We don't even know if the paralyzed man had faith. And then we come to the woman with the bleeding issue who simply reaches out and touches his garment. He says, who touched me? And then he says to her, woman, your faith has healed you. So what we see coming into this story is faith of all strengths demonstrated and resulting in God working miraculously. Are you following what I'm saying here? My favorite story, because I relate to this growing up, is the one of the demon-possessed son or, or the epileptic. The father had brought the son to the disciples and they were having no success. Jesus comes and says, what's going on here? And at that moment, the son uh, falls into a seizure and Jesus says to the father, how long has he been this way? And the father says, since his youth. And there are times it throws him into the fire. And then the father desperately looks at Jesus and says, please do something if you can. And Jesus literally repeats verbatim what the father says back to him. If you can. Anything's possible. If you have faith... And who knows how the Father... It's the most honest response to Jesus in all the Gospels. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think if all of us were honest, that's the reality of our faith. There, there is faith in Christ, and, and it ought to be growing the more you're in Jesus, as your track record grows, as you grow in your understanding of the Word of God. Your faith ought to increase. But the truth is, we all struggle with unbelief. And it shows up in different ways that we do not obey or we do not step boldly. It shows in what we trust, for instance, in our retirement versus what God uh, is willing to provide for us. There's just so many ways that our unbelief plays. And, and here this father, maybe the most self-aware man in the Gospels, admits that his faith is a weak one. And the question you need to ask is, was it enough? Because Jesus says, all things are possible if you have faith. Was it enough? Doesn't even matter. It's the wrong question. Because he took that faith and he brought it to Jesus. And you know what he did? He delivered his son. You see, the story here 
is not, cannot be, and should not be that we walk away thinking we are rewarded by the miraculous based on the size of our faith. That is not what he's saying here. In fact, the Greek language is clear. What Jesus is saying is, since you have professed your faith, I will act miraculously. Does that make sense? This is a truth for all of us. But it doesn't follow that when Christ answers miraculously, it will be exactly what you're looking for. And the longer you're in faith and you watch how God works miraculously in people's lives, you recognize that sometimes the greatest transformation and miracles happen with people who are forced, who are trusted by God's grace to walk the journey of suffering. And in doing so, let people see the miraculous work of God in sustaining their spirit. And who ultimately do receive the miracle of healing when they pass into eternity. What comes to mind right now is Renee and her twin sister, Robin, were in my youth group when I was a youth pastor. Seems a really long time ago now. I think Flock of Seagulls was doing pretty well on the charts, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I was with Renee and Robin and Barbara and Richard when their father, Jim, passed away from Huntington's disease. And over the years, it became clear that Robin and Renee had inherited that gene as they began to show signs of that. and. Um, I visited Renee not long before she passed away and watched how difficult those final days were for her. And then I had the blessing of taking part in the celebration of her homegoing. And what I'd imagine for Renee was that moment when she passed into the presence of God and every limb worked and she leapt for joy And she breathed in with those lungs that were now functioning the rare air of heaven and was miraculously transformed. You see, for a Christian, that is healing. In fact, that's the ultimate healing. That's the the healing all of us will need because we're all going to die. We will all succumb to disease and infirmity in our time. Now, I I do not mean in any way to play down or give God an excuse not to act miraculously. I want to say yes to God every single time. But the question is, do we perceive what is truly miraculous that God's doing when we say yes to Him? I like to think of the miracles in Scripture as the eternal state breaking in to our state. Someday, that will be the norm. It's not the norm today. It's not the norm for even Jesus' followers, but it is God's good pleasure to demonstrate His miraculous work, to give us a glimpse of the kingdom, to remind us that He's at work, because it furthers His purpose. And if you've experienced the miracle from God, and you are not letting God then use you in the way that He intended, then you're making a mockery of that miracle. Because he didn't do it just for your good. He did it so that a greater work of God could be displayed. 
So what is that greater work that we're looking at here? Well, here's the thing I want you to understand. Go back to what they say to him. The two blind men followed, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, that term is very important because in that region, there was a very heightened level of expectancy for the coming of the Messiah. These men were not just saying, Jesus, help us. They were saying, have mercy on a son of David. They were indicating that they believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah who would come and be a descendant of David and take over the throne of David. So this is really, really important. Let me just show you some of the prophecies that were spoken of about the Messiah by Isaiah. Let's say this together. And when he comes, he will... Stop. The Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. Let's keep reading. He will unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Did you know there is not a single recorded event in all of the Old Testament of blind being healed? This particular miracle was to mark the coming of the son of David. Do you see the importance? Jesus himself, when he begins his ministry, is in the synagogue, and he's asked to read from Scripture in Luke 4. He opened the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has appointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free and that the time of the Lord's favor or the year of jubilee, that which would be ushered in by the coming of the Messiah, has come. And then Jesus closed the scroll, Luke records. He sat down and he said, this has been fulfilled today in your midst. You see, when we come into the story just from the experience of the blind men, We're missing the greater glory. We're missing the greater miracle that Matthew has in mind for us to see. When we hear this question that Jesus asked, this is how we hear it. Do you believe that I can do this? But this is how I think Jesus asked it. Do you believe that I can do this? And when they say yes, Lord, they are saying, yes, we believe you can. That word for Lord in Greek is Kyrie. Now, go back to the the, the verse where it says the blind men said to him. Say it with me. Have mercy on us, son of David. That phrase, have mercy on us, is the Greek word eleison. If you put that together, you come up with a very common expression used in high churches, Kyrie eleison. And you know what it means? Lord, have mercy. There is so much more in this story. As powerful as it is that blind can see when Jesus chooses to do that, there's something so much more powerful, so much more transformational, so much more miraculous from an eternal perspective, and that is that the one that they have come to, 
is God who has come in human form. He is the son of David. He is the God-man. He is the inheritor of the throne of David, and yet he is Lord. He is master. He is sovereign over all things. And the issue here in this story is not the strength of our faith. It's the direction of our faith, because that's always what matters. It's about who you're putting your faith in. That's the case that Matthew is making, not only for the Jews of his day, but for you and me today. And so we come back now and and we see some important things that this whole thing reveals to us. And let me just call them out for you. First of all, this story reveals the importance of personal faith. I believe that every human being has faith. I don't think the problem is lack of faith for most people. It's just a question of what you put your faith in. You put your faith in in the chair when you sit on it. You put your faith in in a a person when you say, I'm willing to live with you for till death us do part. We put our faith in politicians. We put our faith in a doctor when he says, take this medicine or follow this procedure. We all exercise faith all the time. Don't tell me you don't have faith. You're just choosing where you place that faith. Some of us put our faith in the fact that there's nothing to put our faith in. But you're exercising your faith to do that. We all exercise faith. That is a gift by being created in the image of God, and it's important that we recognize that we are to exercise that faith in what or whom we place that faith in. And that leads us to the second point. This story reveals the absolute necessity to put that faith in Jesus. Now, our society will say it's just important that you believe something. Even people who are complete secularists. By the way, many of our founding fathers were very anti-Christian, even though we know others were, were committed to Christ. And if you read their writings, you'll see that they basically thought the whole Christian thing was was phony. They were products of the Enlightenment. But they saw the value of having people who had faith for the moral good of the society. And, And that philosophy has carried into our culture today. We think it's just really good that you have faith in something. But it's not just that we exercise our faith. That faith was given to us so that we might place it in the hands of Jesus Christ. So that we might say, as these blind men did, yes, Lord, which is a statement of submission and surrender, even as it is a statement of faith. And and that leads us to what I think is a real truth out of this story and others. This story reveals God's readiness and willingness to show mercy. Time and time again, we see him ready and willing to heal when men and women, with whatever longing they have in their heart, with whatever need they have, come to him, put that faith, weak or strong, in the one who alone can show us mercy. You see, it's about learning to expect the miraculous in our life by saying yes to God. But then it's also about learning to let God in his sovereign grace 
dictate what that miraculous is for you. And for some of you, that, that may mean miraculous healing or deliverance from what you're going through. And I want you to know, I will pray, yes, Lord, with you for that. I will, because I know he can. But it's also about learning to see that God always answers with miraculous. And even if it doesn't look the way we want it to look, God will do a great thing through it, and you will be grateful for it in time. Father, we thank you for this story. What a great reminder of your willingness to come and work in our lives, but you're looking for something. You're looking for us to admit our powerlessness. It's not about the greatness of our faith, that we just put it in something. It's your power. It's your person. You're looking for us to surrender to you. And like these men who experienced your miraculous work in their lives, we want to say that simple two-word phrase with all that it entails. We want to say yes to you. But in saying it, we profess that you are Lord. You are sovereign over our lives. You are sovereign over nature and over the circumstances. You wield them according to your will and purposes. And we ask that we would learn to see the miraculous hand of God and celebrate it, that we would learn to expect it for each other and in our own lives as well. In Jesus' name, amen.